Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends and feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Lisa Raitt's going to be joining us, Deputy Leader for the Opposition, MP for Milton, the Conservative Party of Canada, in regard to uh, the Prime Minister and conflict of interest in regard to the Jody Wilson-Raybould SNC-Lavalin scandal. We'll talk about that moments from now. Uh, also, we'll give you an update on Hong Kong. The protests there continue uh, into 10 weeks of, of demonstrating uh, what does that mean for the rest of the world and specifically uh, trade. Uh, An op-ed today says that while the president of China is looking to conquer the world, uh, put, uh, however, China not in the best spotlight, there are issues that uh, they need to look at at home. We'll talk about that. It's all coming up on today's podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Lisa Raid is with us, Deputy, uh, Deputy Leader for the Opposition, Conservative MP for Milton, and on the line now. Lisa, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you for your time. Uh, I also must compliment you on how you handled uh, the uh, inquiry that went on in regard to the uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould SNC-Lavalin scandal way back when. I thought you asked uh, very important questions and and did your best to to hold everybody's feet to the fire. So kudos for that. Um, How significant is this report? How big is this? It's massive. I I can't, um, you can't even quantify it. I mean, it's it's 60 pages long, and every page you turn, you see some more truth come out, exactly how this was handled, what was said. And for the first time ever, we're getting to see the testimony that I was unable to get at these committee meetings because the Liberals shut down this inquiry. And it's from people around this situation. And even then, what we do know from the ethics commissioner himself is that the prime minister tried and it succeeded and withholding information from the ethics commissioner to do his own investigation. So there is a lot more to unfold. I think people are going to have to digest this. We have to hear what the prime minister has to say for himself. And there will be lots of discussions about this issue over the coming weeks and months. What stood out in the report that you did not get answered in that inquiry? Because, again, uh, the headlines that we're all reading now is that uh, Trudeau broke ethics rules by trying to exert influence in this case. But this goes a lot deeper as to even withholding information. Uh, What stuck out for you in this report that that you wanted answers to? Uh, Well, what stuck out in the report was just how closely involved SNC-Lavalin was and how deep they were into the Prime Minister's office. You know, it's one thing for a company, and all companies do this, trust me. They want to get in, they want to see the Minister, they want to see the Prime Minister, they want to plead their case, and that's fine. But there are gatekeepers who prevent that from happening because you can't have the Prime Minister doing the bidding of companies. And in this case, um, the Prime Minister's up to it in his ears. I mean, he is completely immersed in, in actually becoming the surrogate for SNC-Lavalin trying to argue their case against the judicial system that we currently have in place. It's actually unthinkable that he would do something like that. So much for his oath to Canadians, quite frankly. Uh, we remember when this when this all started way back when, it seemed we were talking about this every single day for weeks. Um, many were surprised, including me, that this story even resonated with the Canadian public the way that it did. Maybe you can expand on why you thought it did. But do you think that this report and, uh, you know, this uh, uh, and obviously uh, exposing Trudeau for uh, actually trying to influence the office of the attorney general, do you think this will resonate as much as the original story with Canadians? Yep, I think so. I mean, this is this is even more testimony. This is even more, 
even more information than we had before. As I said, it's going to take a while to digest it all, and I think there'll be copious amounts of, of information coming out. I also believe, and, and people haven't even probably thought about this, there is an OECD investigation right now into whether or not the Prime Minister has erroneously or wrongly interfered with a corruption and bribery case in Canada in contravention of international treaties. I mean, this goes on and on and on. And it all started when the Prime Minister was confronted with the issue and he said the story is false. He's been lying to Canadians since day one on this issue. It's amazing when you go way back when how this didn't seem to matter much to him at the time. Well, he thought he could get away with it. I mean, there's a certain amount of arrogance that is associated with the Prime Minister, and I would submit it's very, it's very true. Um, he doesn't think that anything is going to touch him. He thinks that everything he does is correct and right, and he's above the law. And this isn't his, his first go-around on this. He's already violated the Conflict of Interest Act, thinks that he got away with it. He thinks he thought he got away with this in the fall when he shut down, or in the spring when he shut down all of the inquiries that we were trying to do at various committees, trying to call other witnesses. But he couldn't shut down the ethics commissioner because he's an independent officer of the Parliament of Canada. He's semi-judicial. And as a result, he was able to get to the bottom of it. However, he still didn't get all the information because he was denied the information by the Prime Minister. Is this over for the ethics commissioner, commissioner or is there more work for him to do here? I don't know the answer to that. I believe that he submitted his report. He may do interviews on it. I'm not entirely sure what his game plan will be. Um, but it, even if it stops with his report, I'm sure the RCMP is looking at this. As I said, I'm sure the OECD internationally is looking at this. Uh, it's a significant report, significant findings, um, and it all goes to the integrity of, of the Prime Minister. But it also gives Canadians that rare glimpse into how a Prime Minister operates and what they're going to see is a guy who's in it for his own buddies. And that's not just him. That's Dominic LeBlanc did the same thing. Bill Morneau did the same thing. They're all killed with ethical violations. It's actually unheard of how bad this has been. Uh, speaking of names, what about Gerald Butts? I mean, he was front and center of all of this as, as the Prime Minister's right-hand man, and some say took the fall or fell on the sword and resigned, as did the, the clerk to the Privy Council, Michael Wernick. Uh, where are they in all of this, uh, especially considering Gerald Butts is now back with the Prime Minister's office in the sense that he's helping them with the, with the, the election campaign in the fall? Yeah. A very curious bit of timing, I would say. On July 19th of this year, the Prime Minister was given parts of this report in order to take a look at what the what the ethics commissioner was going to write about the process and how he didn't get the information he needed. And the next day, Jerry Butts arrived in Ottawa to help his buddy in the campaign. So, interesting coincidence, right? When they knew that it was going to be terrible in terms of this report, that's when they, they thought, well, we might as well bring it back and see what he could fix. Many have said that he's so great that uh, he's the reason that the Prime Minister got elected. Can he, is he needed to get him out of this jam? Is, is it, will that work or backfire? You know what? Canadians elect Prime Ministers and elect parties. Canadians are going to be making their choice in October, and Canadians will now have the full picture from an independent, semi-judicial official of Parliament of Canada saying that the Prime Minister has lied, that the Prime Minister has tried to make sure that the judicial system goes in favor of his friends and he exerted undue influence and he abused the power of his office. So Canadians have a lot to choose from. I don't know what Jerry Butts could possibly say or do to spin them out of this. Uh, do, do you think that uh, uh, the excuse of I'm trying to save jobs at SNC-Lavalin is going to fly? 
Uh, the you know what the ethics commissioner didn't find that at all. What the ethics commissioner found was that he did it for political purposes, and that it was furthering the private interest of SNC Lavalin. There's no discussion in there about whether or not it's going to be jobs. It doesn't matter what the motivation is. It was all about helping SNC Lavalin. The means, the, you know, the ends don't justify the means, right? So SNC Lavalin wanted to make sure they didn't go through a corruption trial because they didn't want to lose their own revenues. And they asked the prime minister to help, and he really did try to help all he could. And that's it. It doesn't matter why motivation. It was wrong. What he did was completely wrong. Lisa Raitt is with us, deputy leader for the opposition, conservative MP for Milton. Lisa, do you think SNC-Lavalin will get this deal now? Because, again, this is still all up in the air, is it not? It is. It's always in the purview of the minister to take over the prosecution and overrule the the people who made the decision not to offer them the the, the deferred prosecution agreement. But I'm going to surmise that they're not. And I'll tell you why. I'm just um, getting information here that the RCMP have weighed in, and they have said that they're examining the matter carefully with all available information and will take appropriate actions as required. So the RCMP is looking into this now. How do you think this happens, Lisa? I mean, many many said way back when, uh, you know, the Conservatives were saying he's not ready before the election campaign or before the initial election campaign and such. Uh, it just seems that he's unaware of what he can do and, and, and can't do. Uh, is, is, is he qualified to do this or is he being pushed around by people in the Prime Minister's office? You know, when you take those oaths and you know Canadian people, um, Sure as heck, you expect that you're reading up on what you can and can't do. I just think what it comes down to is that they truly believe that rules don't apply to them and that they can get away with things because of who they are. And they tell themselves these lies that they're doing it for the benefit of so-and-so, but they're doing it for the benefit of themselves, and that's not democracy and that's not the way it's supposed to work. So I'm not going to give him any passes. I'm not going to say that he did it um, with malice. I'm not going to say he did it out of stupidity. What I'm going to say is he did it. And that's all that matters in this case. How do and then he tried to lie to get out of it, though. That's the big kick, right? He tried to lie to get out of it, and that's a huge problem for uh, for people, I believe, to, to swallow. Many many Even have compared this. Many have compared this to other scandals. Some mentioned the uh, Watergate scandal. It's not so much the crime; it's the way they tried to cover it up afterwards. Is the same happening here? I don't know. I just know that the very first question he was asked uh, about the story, he said the story is false. So anything after that, look at the mess we're in right now. Months and months later, he, um, we have the ethics commissioner talking about more obstruction. The RCMP are looking into it now. I mean, what is this doing to our face and name on the world stage? What, what a joke we are. What a joke. He already violated the accomplice once to take a free vacation, and then he got away with it. So what, he decides to up the ante and interfere in a criminal prosecution. Many uh, across the country will view this, uh, especially with the SNC-Lavalin connection, that he is trying to appease uh, Quebec voters. How do you think this is going to play in Quebec? I believe that Quebecers, uh, like all Canadians, are going to be disgusted by a prime minister who tries to lie his way out of, out of wrongdoing. And they're not going to be impressed at all that they, he tried to smear Jody Wilson-Raybould, the ethics commissioner, fines that he tried to smear her through himself and through other ways, and that he also um, would not give the ethics commissioner information. At the end of the day, the rule of law is core to our democracy, and all Canadians believe in that. That's what makes us a great country, and that's what allows us to have our freedoms that we have, that we abide by the law. He's not abiding by the law. 
I, I don't see any difference in how any Canadian's going to view it, unless you're just a hardcore liberal and you're terrified that you're going to lose your government power because that's exactly what's going to happen. I can't obviously get you to speak for anybody else, but how do you think Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott are feeling today? Well, Jody, of course, um, was interviewed uh, as part of this ethics investigation. She also uh, made comments to the CBC last week when she was asked about some comments of Mr. Trudeau's and Aaron Wary's new book that he had. Uh, I think Aaron Wary had greater access to the Prime Minister than the Ethics Commissioner did in the investigation, by the way, because, of course, they're trying to create their own narrative. But I think, um, you know, this is a sad day. Uh, Jody and Jane told the truth from the beginning, and they were severely punished for it and slandered, and they attempted to ruin their reputations. And even even in the, the report today, the lawyer for the Prime Minister basically says that Jody Wilson-Raybould was incompetent. Incompetent. And I find that absolutely outrageous, uh, that even to the end, they were slurring and slamming Jody Wilson-Raybould. So how does she feel today? I'm sure she's looking at it saying, you know, how did this happen? What? Why did this happen to me? I was doing what was right. But I wish her all the best in her election in Ottawa, in, uh, in Vancouver Granville. Uh, is she exonerated now with this report? Always was to me. Yeah. I don't think there is anything that Jody Wilson-Raybould did that was wrong. Liberals want to spin you that they're, oh, outraged that she taped a conversation. You know why she taped the conversation? To protect herself from these guys. And look at the length that these guys went to. Even telling the ethics commissioner he couldn't have information. I mean, come on. Of course, she did what she needed to do. And they forced her hand in actually producing that tape because they lied. So, you know, exoneration wasn't needed. I believe she's believed across the country. Lisa Radisman with us, Deputy Leader for the Opposition, Conservative MP for Milton. Lisa, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. For an update on what is happening in Hong Kong, let's bring in Vincent Wong, Research Associate, International Human Rights Program, University of Toronto, Faculty of Law, and he is with us now. Vincent, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me back on the show, Scott. What is the latest coming out of Hong Kong? Uh, how is it there now today? Uh, sure. So I think today is... Um, You know, people are still kind of recovering from the last two days that have been really intense. Um, On on August, the last weekend has been particularly intense. Uh, On August 12th, the kind of clashes between the riot police and protesters crossed, I think, a few red lines that had not been crossed before. Um, One of the medics or a volunteer first aider a woman was uh, shot in the eye with a, a bean, beanbag round, mm. and, uh, you know, she will lose uh, her right eye, vision in her right eye permanently. Um, there were instances of police framing post- protesters that was found on video, uh, people trying to put weapons inside their bags the moment that they were uh, in contact with protesters. Um, there were te- was tear gas fired for the first time inside subway stations where people have obviously nowhere to run. And, um, you know, there's there's no kind of rationale for that if the point is to disperse the crowd. Uh, there was an incident where riot police shot uh, directly at protesters from uh, distances of about a meter or two. Uh, and there were a, a really one that really created seething anger and paranoia was the uh, 
starting of the tactic of impersonating protesters with having undercover police wearing the same gear. Um, talk a little bit about that. that. Talk about expand a little bit more on that, Vincent, because we've heard we saw the uh, the the beating that happened, and then uh, other players put into this, or stage players put into this. Explain what's happening here. So um, it's. I, I mean, the tactic is a, a pretty straightforward tactic. It's rather a dirty tactic. It is to essentially have undercover police officers wearing, um, you know, the, the, the protesters, the, the kind of hardcore protesters, if you could say, uh, have a, a relatively similar kind of uniform, which is essentially that of a black shirt, yellow helmet, uh, and then goggles, maybe a uh, 3M kind of gas masks and uh, sometimes saran wrap around their arms. And uh, what had happened on August 12th is that there were several, um, when the riot police charged protesters to uh, arrest them, uh, some of the um, quote-unquote protesters then uh, grabbed, um, uh, you know, kind of the real protesters, and it turned out that wow. they were actually uh, a police. So, so that was uh, how it how it worked. Um in several locations on August 12th. We've seen that uh, the convoy of military that seems to be uh, assembling outside the borders. Um, how concerned are you of all of this? Um, I think it is really concerning, um, even if, it, 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 you know, my view, and I think most uh, people share the view that the an actual uh, PLA crackdown from China is is relatively unlikely uh it's more you know kind of a demonstration of threat the the fact that you know you have to even consider that it is a material possibility is is really really scary but i think the the government has from from the from the chinese government standpoint uh it's more of a cost benefit analysis and i think they would really rather not deal with the very messy cost of having another kind of Tiananmen Square type crackdown, but they have other tools at their disposal, including um, militarizing the Hong Kong police force even further, um, you know, instigating curfews, uh, you know, shutting down particular lines of transportation uh, that the protesters rely on. Um, we've seen kind of kind of the economic uh, leverage being used with companies being forced to take sides and um, fire or otherwise discipline staff who are supportive of the protest. Um, what about the relationship between Hong Kong police and the citizens versus uh, the citizens and the military? I mean, uh, right now, the Hong Kong police seem to be doing a lot of the dirty work for the Chinese government. Uh, is there any chance of that breaking down? So I think the it's, um, pretty clear that the relationship between Hong Kong police and uh, the citizens have reached an all-time low. Uh, the, the the police have sort of ignored and increasingly, uh, in, in more egregious ways, violated um, uh, kind of you know the UN principles on use of force and firearms, as well as their own internal guidelines. And so. The, the loss of trust there is palpable to the point where many of the protesters, you know, after this kind of two months of being um, constantly uh, beaten and harassed and arrested by police, are, are really considering kind of new 
uh, political imaginations, a more kind of decarceral or, or abolitionist kind of uh, politics is, is slowly emerging among the Hong Kong youth. So, so that's the, the kind of level of distrust um, that, is, that it currently exists between protesters, the broader citizen politique, and a Hong Kong police force. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's really sad because the police force have done a lot over many decades to earn the trust of the vast majority of Hong Kong people and to have it evaporate in a matter of, of months uh, is, is a sad thing to watch. How does the majority of Hong Kong feel about this? And I guess where I'm going in regard to the, the questions about the police, I mean, these people are from Hong Kong, too. At what point do they say, I'm not doing this? Is that is that even possible or out of the question? Sure. I mean, I we've often very... we've often seen in situations like this where there's coups or whatever, where uh, the local people realize, no, we're not going to do this for you. Yeah, I, 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 I think I can see where you're going with this. Um, it's, you know, it's obvious, but I'll point it out. Obviously, Hong Kong doesn't have a military, right? That, that is obviously uh, in the exclusive jurisdiction of the Chinese government. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has police. And uh, the police can act almost as like a, 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 a military institution in many other uh, countries, right? And it has its own kind of political sentiments. And so an interesting kind of um, interplay to watch is how powerful the Hong Kong police force is as an institution in this moment. Actually, when you take a look at the administration, they're kind of uh, missing in action. They come out every once in a while. They say these, uh, they hold these press conferences in which they kind of repeat meaningless platitudes. They evade questions and then they run away. When uh, the number two of the Hong Kong administration, uh, Mr. Matthew Zheng, uh, kind of came out and said, you know, we have to take a look at, um, you know, you know, whether the police behavior uh, in, on January 21st, when when it was a triad kind of meeting and the police um, uh, were slow to react, he, he came on camera and said, you know, maybe we need to take a look at this. He was immediately uh, kind of criticized and slammed by the police unions. And after that, the administration had been too afraid to say anything um, that, that could make the police look better to make uh, uh, police accountability an issue. So really now you have a government that is extremely weak. You have a police force that is extremely strong, and it's the only kind of uh, state representation that the people see. And then that is backed up. The, the police force is really being backed up by uh, the, the Chinese government. Uh, quote out of Beijing uh, earlier this week, yesterday, I believe, uh, quote, uh, if you continue with this, you're asking for self-destruction. Those are pretty powerful words. Yeah, definitely. And uh, they've used kind of increasing rhetoric uh, on it. it um, you know, one of the press conferences recently, they, uh, the Hong Kong and Macau Affairs Office said that uh, the protesters are sowing the seeds of terrorism. And so what they're trying to do is kind of lay the political rhetoric for a harsher crackdown, uh, because, of course, the Chinese government doesn't really care about what other countries or the international media thinks. It does care about what its own citizens think of what's going on in Hong Kong. And then so the, the shift 
before uh, in June, it was really more an approach of censorship and try to keep it hush hush within the population. Now it's kind of full on. Um, let, let's kind of use all of our media, all of our propaganda power to show these Hong Kongers as uh, violent, as uh, terrorists, as, um, you know, controlled by foreign forces so that we can start building the blocks for a harsher crackdown that the majority of the Chinese population will get behind. Uh, Vincent Wong is with us from the University of Toronto. Vincent, is it just a matter of time before that happens? We all know that this was originally under a British rule for 100 years, then in 97, given back over. Uh, some promise of a, 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 a one country, two system, uh, political system, uh, government. Uh, is it just a matter of time before Hong Kong slowly erodes away under Chinese rule? Um, well, nobody can, of course, nobody can predict the future. Um, there's no doubt that I think most observers and, you know, actors would tell you that the short-term uh, prognosis looked bleak. Uh, but at the same time, things have moved quickly before, right? I mean, you're a student of history. Things change. Things, things change within China. Things change within Hong Kong. And although... Um, this is kind of the one of the darkest uh, chapters in in its history. Um, you know, things. It, I mean, it sounds a little bit uh, naive or a little bit cliche, but it, you have to keep the hope alive. And as long as you keep, uh, you know, fighting for it, if your messaging is uh, clear, if your values are clear, um, that that builds the seeds for the future. So I think protesters, they need to keep that hope up. As Hong Kongers, we, we need to keep that, uh, that hope alive because otherwise, uh, you know, the, 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 there will be zero chance, right? There will actually be uh, no hope. What are your thoughts on Donald Trump's reaction or lack thereof? So Especially I, when the Congress seems to counter counterdict what he says, contradict what he says. Sure, sure. So um, it's it's a very strange. Well, let me contextualize this a little bit, right? I think the fact that the U.S. under the Trump administration has specifically been antagonistic to international regimes, to any multilateral uh, uh, governance structures, and has you know very clearly tried to extricate itself from uh, international community, especially in terms of the international human rights community. This has given the uh, space in the international political community for authoritarian governments to step into that vacuum, and especially China to step into that international leadership vacuum. And, and, and it's kind of free season because they know that there will be no uh, kind of strong foreign pushback uh, to a human rights crackdown. And so when Trump comes out with the tweet, I think he sent yesterday, I mean, it just, it it doesn't mean very much, um, to be perfectly honest, I think either way, uh, uh, for the people of, of Hong Kong. Are you are you convinced that if needed, the U.S. would step in and help? Um, again, there seems to be conflicting messages from the president and, and the Congress. Mitch McConnell yeah. and such. 
I, I think it is uh, pretty clear to, to any kind of clear-eyed observer that that would not happen. Um, but more, I think, importantly, is the sense of solidarity from the U.S. that, you know, many uh, other uh, political leaders have given, right, uh, both on the Democratic and Republican uh, end from the, uh, from the China Congressional Executive Committee. Um, you know, Lance, Nancy Pelosi, uh, many of the Democratic presidential nominees have spoken out in support. Uh, more importantly, I think, is the official statement yesterday from the High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle uh, Bachelet, that has essentially um, said that we've reviewed credible evidence that there has been uh, excessive use of force by police and that they support basically the Independent Commission of Inquiry um, into the matter. So, so these are, I think, um, important statements, and they raise the cost of uh, China going in and, and doing a very harsh crackdown. But I think nobody is under the pretenses, except for a very, you know, kind of minority uh, group of people that, uh, you know, that America would actually consider it. Intervening. When this uh, agreement was drawn up way back when in the, in the uh, eventual separation uh, of, uh, of Hong Kong and, and British rule uh, became greater, most thought China would uh, adapt or adopt more to Hong Kong as opposed to the other way around. Most thought that you know uh, China would see the success of Hong Kong and what it has become and perhaps uh, loosen up its own ties, so to speak. Um, that clearly isn't isn't happening. Uh, many have said that China is this century's world power. Is this as easy as it appears right now, or are they having their own difficulty, and will it be a hard sell if this does blow up? There's no doubt that, and I think, I'm. you know, we may have uh, discussed this last time uh, I was on the air, that the internal politics in China are actually extremely rocky. And although from an outside observer's point of view, um, if you're not kind of looking under the hood, it, it looks a little bit, you know, like everybody is on the same page with the current administration. That is most certainly not the case. Hmm. But she has done a lot in the last few years to consolidate power. In 2015, there was a massive crackdown on human rights defenders and civil society within China, crushing the ability of civil society to really kind of mount uh, defense. Uh, you know, he's used the anti-corruption campaign uh, to essentially eliminate his, his political rivals. He has, uh, um, you know, most famously removed constitutional limits from his term as president so he could serve uh, technically for life. Um, but it would be wrong to say that everybody is on board with what he is doing and, and, and the political cost that it's uh, enacting on, on, on kind of China's foreign uh, reputation. And so I, I most assuredly believe that not everybody is on board with how she is conducting um, uh, uh, the, the, China's, the, the Hong Kong situation. And, and broadly speaking, um, you know, kind of she's major policies uh, and, and this relationship with with the U.S. So there, there most definitely is a lot of 
of, of rivalry and internal tension. Hmm. The Hong Kong protests continue. Clashes spreading to police stations within the area. Tenth week of demonstrations. Vincent Wong has been with us, Research Associate, International Human Rights Program, University of Toronto, Faculty of Law. Vincent, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, Fascinating op-ed today uh, appears in the uh, Globe and Mail. It's by Charles Burton. And uh, he's, of course, associate professor, Department of Political Science with Brock University. In the op-ed says that while uh, the president of China is looking to conquer the world and put uh, China into a better spotlight, there are issues he needs to look at at home. Of course, Hong Kong being one of them. Uh, Charles Burton is with his associate professor, Department of Political Science, Brock University and on the line now. Charles, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Well, it's good to speak with you again, Scott. So, Charles, at one point, uh, China was viewed as the golden goose. Uh, over the last several decades, this is where all the opportunity was. We heard this over and over and over again as we tried uh, very diplomatically to bow to them and, and allow to be part of, uh, of the new regime and what was happening in China. How has world perception of China changed in the last couple of years? Well, I think that uh, certainly you're right. We thought that China was the future for Canada, that it would allow us an opportunity to diversify our economic dependence on the United States, particularly with the uncertainty over the future of NAFTA when Donald Trump became the president. Uh, Mostly this has been a promise. Uh, Canada has been consistently losing market share in China Despite our China-friendly policies, um, you know, even among the even among the conservatives, where we have given the Chinese government a lot of latitude in terms of their um, espionage operations, their uh, their demand for us to return uh, persons in Canada who have fallen afoul of the Chinese regime to face Chinese justice, uh, the desire of of Chinese state enterprises to um, gain control of Canadian mineral and energy resources. We've made a lot of concessions, uh, really, of our sovereignty, to be frank about it, uh, in exchange for a promise of reduction of the non-tariff barriers that block Canadians from getting a fair shake in that market. And despite uh, China's um, consistent purloining of proprietary manufacturing processes and and uh, and intellectual property but we haven't got the uh, what we'd expected to get out of it and now i think the united states is insisting that that china change its practices to ensure fair and reciprocal trade um, and uh, the chinese regime is clearly not prepared to to do anything like that for fear that it will affect the the nature of the chinese communist party's uh, control over the politics there. So, you know, I think it's sort of the the scales are falling from our eyes kind of thing, and the the true nature of the regime is becoming clearer, and we realize that our previous assumptions about the direction that China was going um, misinterpreted uh, what the Chinese Communist Party really has in mind for their future domestically and internationally. Um, uh, many have said that the last century was uh, was North America's. Prior to that, Europe. The next century, this century that we're in, belongs to China. Uh, the world domination is coming. Is it? Is it a done deal? I mean, your headline for your Globe and Mail column, Xi Jinping may want to rule the world, but he has problems at home too. How can this change of image that the world has of China slow this progress down? 
Well, I think certainly some things. For example, the the Chinese government's desire to use their major firm Huawei to become dominant in uh, telecommunications infrastructure, and I guess potentially control global telecommunications infrastructure, is not working out now that the United States is onto this and um, is pressuring U.S. allies not to not to use Huawei in their telecommunications for security reasons. And other things, like the Belt and Road Initiative is not going as planned because of some missteps by China where small countries have been caught up in what's called debt trap diplomacy where their regimes, often corrupt regimes, have received generous Chinese loans. They haven't been able to repay them, and then China insists on taking control of infrastructure like port facilities for China's geostrategic purposes. So you know, they're a long way from achieving this goal of displacing the United States as the global hegemon and reorienting the entire global economy towards Beijing. That's supposed to happen by 2050. But uh, there there are a lot of unknown factors there that suggest that, you know, things may not go exactly the way the Chinese communist regime hopes for China. And, they, and their prediction of the collapse of the United States may be pretty premature. Explain the Belt and Road Initiative. Well, this is a major infrastructure um, project by China where they've got the um, the land belt, which would be putting in high-speed rail and uh, other transportation infrastructure all across Eurasia from China right up to Spain and further on. And then the road, which is the marine road, which um, develops uh, ports and shipping facilities uh, also from China to Africa, Middle East, and, and all the way over to Europe. So the idea is uh, massive infrastructure investment using surplus capacity of the Chinese regime based on, on loans given to nations for infrastructure development that the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank do not regard as feasible um, without the kind of governance and, um, and fiscal um, provisions that the traditional aid agencies have have insisted on. And um, the general purpose, I think, is part of Mr. Xi's idea of what he refers to as the future uh, community of the, of the common destiny of mankind, which is to displace the global institutions like the WTO and the UN with a China orientation where China would be the dominant power on the planet and the rest of us would be subordinate to China's power and economy. Um, it's an enormously uh, ambitious uh, ambitious plan, and the uh, implementation of it requires huge resources that China may or may not be able to access over the next 30 years. So is this still about world domination for China rather than partnerships, which I think everybody in the Western world has been hoping for or naively thought it was? Yeah, I don't think we see much in the way of reciprocal, equal partnerships with China. It's always an asymmetrical power relationship with them. And I think that there is a, a historical basis for this, that the Chinese regime sees itself as inheriting the tradition of Chinese civilization and recognizes that up until just a few hundred years ago, in other words, a short time in the overall scope of Chinese history, that China was the dominant civilization and economic power on the planet, and all other nations were subordinate to it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even if you read Marco Polo's travels, 
everything about China, according to him, and it's historically quite valid, was superior to the West in terms of you know, uh, technologies and economies. So China would like to see it, as it perceives it, restoring itself to its rightful place as the dominant power in the planet. And, um, you know, the rest of us don't see it that way, but China certainly has this idea of the rise and fall of empires and sees the American uh, Anglosphere as in the decline and uh, a China-led Asia as in the ascendancy. Are there questions? Are there uh, 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 debates? Are there uh, uh, disagreements about how this should happen? How solidified is the Chinese government behind Xi? Um, considering where they started and, and what this project was like a couple of decades ago and where we've got to now, is the Chinese government as solid as we think it is? I think that that's very much in question. I mean, certainly I think that there are a lot of people in China who feel that the polarization of wealth between the Chinese communist elite and ordinary people is out of control. It's some of the highest levels of of uh, economic injustice uh, in the world today. And that China is overextending in these um, external infrastructure projects while um, poverty is still the order of the day for perhaps a hundred million people living in China now. These are people, you know, who have to struggle to get enough to eat and enough fuel to keep their houses warm. And so the question is, why is the regime serving the interests of a business and political elite through these grandiose schemes, not addressing the concerns of ordinary people who really want social welfare and uh, and medical insurance and pensions and and high quality education for their children like why isn't the investment going into that rather than than building port facilities in in Africa and South America to fulfill China's larger geostrategic plans so there's debate about that certainly nationalists in China believe in the inevitability of China's rise and that China should be making the sacrifices necessary for future generations to achieve that. But within China, I think there are a lot of people who are more concerned about what's right in front of them in their daily lives and and skeptical of, of the government's overextension into these schemes based on an ideology that they that most people really don't believe. How can or will Hong, what's happening in Hong Kong right now affect all of this? Because again, when this handover took place uh, way back when in, in 97, after 100 years of British rule, uh, obviously Hong Kong, a vibrant economic uh, society and such, uh, their own judicial system and such. Uh, and now as China is slowly squeezing Hong Kong, how will this affect all of this? Because theoretically, when this all happened, everybody thought China would become more like Hong Kong, not Hong Kong more like China. Yes, I think that when the one country, two systems went in and 50 years no change was was talked about and Hong Kong people ruling Hong Kong and maintaining the freedoms that Hong Kong um, enjoyed under the British colonial regime, that there was an expectation that, you know, 50 years from now, China will also have made that progression into a liberal democracy, as so many other places have done. You know, South Korea went from a military government to a democracy. Taiwan has gone from a military government um, based on the same sort of Leninist system as is implicated in China today to a democracy, and that China would simply follow. So, you know, we were we were happy to endorse the Joint Declaration. Canada endorsed the the uh, British and, and Chinese joint declaration before it was lodged into the UN. 
with an expectation that it would be fulfilled. Now it's not being fulfilled because it's clear that China is not making progress towards um, the liberal democratic norms that we believe are identified by the universal notion of citizenship and, and human rights, you know, that China... Uh, actually ratified, uh, assigned uh, the Universal, uh, the, the the United Nations International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights in 1998, and we expected that they would, you know, change their laws and practices and be able to ratify it and and bring it and bring about a, a society based on those United Nations ideals. Uh, it's not happening. So the question is, where is Canada in this? We endorse that that uh, joint declaration. Um, if we endorsed it, then the expectation was that we would have a stake in seeing it upheld. But since, uh, particularly since Party General Secretary Xi Jinping came into power in 2012, we're seeing more and more incursions on the freedoms in Hong Kong, which have now resulted in this disastrous mass protest movement by, by uh, mostly young people who want to see the freedoms in Hong Kong um, maintained and guaranteed and are not prepared to back down against the Chinese government that can't give them what they want because of the impact that that might have on cities within China. So, you know, it's uh, we're now between a rock and a hard place, and I think there's a lot of concern that this thing will end in, in brutal violence and death. Uh, what about Donald Trump's response to all of this? Uh, Mr. Trump has not been helpful. Um, you know, one of the uh, it seems that he's saying one thing, Congress is saying another. Mitch McConnell spoke up recently and said this is unacceptable. Yes, I think that that's uh, that's the problem. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, Chinese government are not big fans of Donald Trump due to the uh, trade war, but he did use the word riot to characterize the mass protests and in Hong Kong, um, rioting as a as a as a crime is subject to a ten year period of detention. So. The protesters want the Hong Kong government not to define it as a riot. So Mr. Trump has not uh, has not helped their cause and has assisted the Chinese cause by, I, I imagine, a statement made without due consideration. But the yes, the U.S. Congress, both Republican and Democratic parties, are pretty much of consensus that that what China is doing is not something that the United States can stand by and accept. So. From that point of view, um, I think that uh, uh, you know the U.S. response is a positive response, and I think a lot of people appreciate that when Mr. Trump says something, one doesn't expect him to be following through with it very much. I just wonder how China interprets it all, that's all. Uh, is China shooting itself in the foot here? I mean, considering where we are and, and how integrated they are into Western economies and such, and again, how we thought about them in the past decades and trying to build these relationships, it appears as if world domination is on hold due to self-inflicted wounds here. Yes, I think that the best thing that China could do would be to acknowledge that the protesters have some basis in their discontent. That the current line is that it's something that's been fomented by the CIA office in Hong Kong, and that the United States is behind it to try and destroy Hong Kong and and disrupt China's international credibility. But what would really be better is if China was prepared to to make some concessions to um, release the the over 600 people who've been arrested so far. And to um, and to give a, a absolute assurance that they won't proceed again with this extradition law, which would be um, so damaging to the principle of judicial independence in Hong Kong. Uh, the protesters would also like China to fulfill its original commitment to 
a, a free and fair universal suffrage election of the uh, chief executive of Hong Kong, uh, which was promised for 2017 and which China reneged on, which was the reason for the 79 days of protests in Hong Kong in 2014. That probably is too much to uh, expect China to, to give in on because, as I say, the impact within China would be of a free and fair election for political leadership would be very damaging to the Chinese Communist Party's um, um, refusal to do so in other par- in other cities. But, you know, I think if they were more realistic and, um, and more conciliatory, then this matter could be resolved. The Hong Kong protesters seem to be reasonable people who who are not asking for an independent Hong Kong, but simply a, a Hong Kong where the promises of, of Hong Kong's autonomy are maintained. Um, but, you know, as I said before, I'm not seeing very much movement in that direction by the Chinese regime, and I'm concerned about the, um, you know, the military buildup on the border that could readily just stream into Hong Kong and put this thing down through brutality. Where do you think this is going? And in this, in your article in the Globe and Mail, uh, you talk about the retreats that uh, the Chinese government is on now. What do you think is happening at those retreats? What's the conversation there? Well, I think they, there would be a lot of dissatisfaction with Mr. Xi's leadership because, you know... He's is this what China was looking for? Is this is this the conflict that they're seeing, uh, uh, the stuff that's happening in, in, in Hong Kong, uh, the detainment of Canadian, uh, of, of the two Michaels, the two Canadians, and, 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 and just clouding relationships with, with people who were once friends and, and, I won't say allies, but certainly business friends. Uh, are there people in this party that are saying, hey, you're screwing up this golden opportunity for us? I think so. I think that there's a feeling that uh, the previous strongman leader, Deng Xiaoping, uh, managed relations with the West with a much uh, lighter hand and sophistication and was able to significantly further China's interests without getting the kickback that Mr. Xi is getting from the uh, trade war with the United States and um, and from uh, this disastrous mismanagement of Hong Kong resulting in in the social unrest that we're seeing right now with no evident end in sight. I think certainly, um, you know, relations with Canada have also been um, seriously uh, disrupted to China's disadvantage. In other words, China's strategy would be to try and and separate us from our our, um, um, alliance with the United States, because that's more in China's interests. And right now they're forcing us to... to, um, to have to get more into compliance with the U.S. approach to China because uh, the way that they've treated Canada in both trade and uh, through the outrageous um, unjustified arrest of Kovrigan's favor is making it impossible for any Canadian political party to to um, act according to what China wants in terms of you know free trade or extradition treaties or allowing Chinese state firms to freely acquire Canadian energy and mineral resources or or a toleration of cyber espionage or, you know, any number of things that, that China has on the agenda is what they want out of Canada. So, uh, of course, I think Mr. Xi is, is going to be in trouble for, you know, what is happening and, and how it's going to to uh, to come down. And it may be that his, uh, his authority will, in fact, start to be um, um, lessened and that other elements within the Chinese regime, hopefully more liberal and enlightened elements, will start to have more say in how China conducts its domestic and international policy. 
Charles Burton has been with us, Associate Professor of Political Science, Brock University, and Senior Fellow at the McDonnell-Laurie Institute Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad and former Counselor at the Canadian Embassy in Beijing. The current Globe and, Mail, uh, Globe and Mail article, Xi Jinping may want to rule the world, but he has problems at home too. Charles Burton has been with us. Charles, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Take care, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.